1896, Fanny Farmer published the Boston School Cookbook. Today, the book is reprinted as the Fanny Farmer Cookbook. Here's one menu Fanny suggested serving at a dinner party. Oysters, mock turtle soup, risole, lobster americaine, saddle of venison, potato and beets, wood-grilled salmon, fried baby artichokes, canton, frozen ginger punch, roast goose, chestnut stuffing and apple sauce, three Victorian jellies, mandarin cake, two-layer cake, coffee, cheese, crackers and candy. It's a lot. So how does Fanny Farmer become a household name from sea to shining sea and leave an impact that reaches far beyond her years? I'm Will Stewart and you're listening to A Cook's Library. We're speaking with Chloe Rose Crabtree, a chef, pie specialist, and food academic. Chloe's an expat. She grew up in LA and moved to Paris for her master's degree. She now lives in London and is mostly writing for her publication, Source Journeys. More on that later. When I reached out to Chloe, I didn't know her master's was about 19th century domestic guides. Fanny Farmer, a name I knew but didn't understand the influence she had, be it a bit complicated too. And this is the thing about Fanny Farmer that sparked my MA research because I actually I got the cookbook the Boston cookery or cook school cookbook from my husband's grandmother she like took me into this room and she has all these books and she's like okay just pick a book that you want and I picked the oldest one I could find um (laughs) and I you know this is before I was even considering going to grad school then as I was looking through it I realized I was like these the amount of work it would take to make these dishes, like there's something missing. This isn't just used in the average household. It's it's really interesting because for the time, it's unbelievably progressive, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, actually what it did is it professionalized the role of the housewife. And what's interesting about that is that it, it did it in a way that wasn't just you have to stay home and cook and clean. It was also you as the wife, as the mother, you are responsible for the upbringing of good American citizens. And by doing, keeping your house in a certain way, feeding your family in a certain way, you are going to create a citizenry that will be befitting to the greatest nation in the world. So it's a huge nationalist project actually, which is what I was looking at is because the way that they formulate the American home is it's based off of this sort of aspirational goal that you have the money to, to be able to afford a, um, a kitchen staff or, or domestic staff and that you can afford to have meat every day. You can afford, you know, all these things that we kind of take for granted. So looking back, yeah, it is, it is pretty progressive, but also it's, it, it's aspirational. It's not necessarily the way people were actually engaging in their home life. The domestic science movement in general was like, one of the only ways women could get a higher degree um, in sciences. And actually it's interesting because Fanny was, she was never married, she never had children, and there was, she's one of a few different women around that time. She's sort of like the last of this generation of women who they professionalized the American home, but they actually didn't run their own homes because they felt that their role was not to be a wife and a mother because they had a professional role. If they were a wife and a mother and they were a professional, then they would be not fulfilling their duties as a wife and a mother. So they sort of live in this space where they're keeping the status quo in terms of like gendered ideas of who can and cannot be professionals while also still being a professional. So it's interesting to see that she was able, she ran this school, she was doing cooking demos across the nation, she you know, is telling people how to live their lives when if we think about the way people thought of women at the time as being people who stayed at home, like she actually wasn't that, even though that's what people were purporting 
that women needed to be doing. So so what happened? So the book gets into the house and it sells, I think I read it was like millions of copies and it's reprinted over time. But there, to some controversy, as they said, there's a lot of bad recipes in the book. Yeah, I mean, the only one I've actually made from the book uh, turned out horribly. <laughs> but I think it's because... It was, it's this recipe called um, Scottish Fancies, and it's like whipped egg whites, sugar, and uh, oats, and then you spread it out on a sheet and you bake it. And I think it turned out horribly for me because I was like, this just isn't a nice cookie that I like. But in the context of what does the average household have, I guess that would probably be a treat because you wouldn't usually have something with that much sugar in it. But yeah, I think the last ish, like edition of the cookbook was in 1990 which is like about 100 years that means it was reprinted pretty regularly it's really like it's hard to understand really how just how much she's impacted my own life and like impacted america as it is today maybe people know who she is but have no idea what she's done or know it like they just recognize the name as a name that you should necessarily know like my parents knew the name but not anything about her yeah, and they don't realize also she's in your kitchen in your measuring cups. You know, she's the one who invented the standard measuring cup and tablespoons because she felt people were coming to cooking. You know, they were, she kind of got rid of some of the intuitiveness of, of cooking, which I have problems with. But when it comes to baking, which is quite an expensive thing to do, you want it to come out right every single time. So actually the invention of these measuring cups, these standard measures and, and standardizing that everyone should use them, have them in their home, um, it made it so that the average household could do something like bake a cake without having to worry that they're going to waste precious resources like flour, butter, sugar, you know, eggs, all those things. They Like a cake is something you don't, you don't have um, on a normal day. It's a luxury. And I guess so much of the like American dream, I don't know if it was the American dream then, I think it probably was, but not labeled as such, is is aspirational. And it's having money, it's having luxury. Well, and a huge part of it was too, is it started as a science and then it became home economics. And in, when it became home economics, this was sort of the early, early 20th century. And that's really when the Boston Cooking School cookbook takes, takes hold on the nation. And it was based on this idea that if you run your home in an economical way, then you can achieve the American dream. So you have a lot of women who were aligned in the, the home economics movement, including Fannie Farmer, who were telling people who were working class, you know, if you basically, if you eat pulses and grains for the next three years, you'll be able to afford a big house. You know, but that didn't really take into account, like you were saying, what people actually want to be eating like right now there is no endless supply of money but you also you don't want to be eating the same thing all the time like that can be really dehumanizing you know so there's a there's a sort of sinister aspect to the the progress that she was making and the and the progressivism of women of her time but it did it, it's it's sort of this dual this dual thing that and that's what i look at is the ways that it policed the way you could be in your home the way you could eat in a way that was deemed respectable i guess i mean i think if you when when it gets talking about like privilege and money whatever context you're in the great example of all time let them eat cake marie antoinette it's so telling of if you don't if when, when you live in a certain way a certain lifestyle you just may not understand we don't have to understand how other people have to live. And so you can write books yeah. and say, like, this is how you should be living your life. This is how you become regal. And this is how you become 
educated and smart and successful. And to this day, like that idea sort of... But it's a huge part of that is kind of what the American dream is built on, is it's built on this idea that prosperity is something that you can achieve through moral greatness. And by, and part of that is when it comes to food is it's restricting yourself from luxuries because you're not worthy of them yet, essentially. In the Boston Cooking School cookbook, where if you look in the back, there's all these menus and the, the menus are very clearly for entertaining. I feel like it's worth mentioning. The menu from the beginning is from Chris Kimball's book and documentary, Fanny's Last Supper. I recommend watching it. Running the right social circles. Um, you know, that wasn't something that the average working class person in New York or Boston was going to be able to do in the same way. So, so do you have any, what are some favorite old school recipes of yours? This one recipe, it, it's called popcorn chicken and it's not kind of like our idea of popcorn chicken where it's fried. Um, basically you take a chicken, you boil it and probably boil the shit out of it because everyone really thought that you had to cook stuff super, super far in order to get all the nutrients out of it. Um, and then you would cover it in popcorn and then smother it in a unseasoned bechamel. Right. Which is like <laughs> a bit gnarly. But at the time, this was like, that would fit into something called like a white dinner. So people felt that you ate with your eyes, which you do. But the idea was is if you had too many different colors on the table, then you wouldn't digest the food right. So they would blanket everything in a white sauce and um, they'd have these white dinners and you would eat basically everything was just covered in this really gross, un unseasoned bechamel. Like it didn't have any butter in it or anything. It was just like flour and flour and milk. Don't know if I'd buy that white dinner. But fair enough if they're digesting it better. Yeah, exactly. It was one of the things that they would do at the Boston cooking schools when you graduated. You know, part of your, your graduation was you had to put on a dinner and one of the things you'd have to do was a theme dinner. And so there are people who would do a pink and green dinner and so everything was pink or green. Um, they would do, you'd have to have menus associated with just women or just men. So the men's menu would be like huge things of meat um lots of bread lots of like coffee spirits and then for women it would be tiny sandwiches because it was also sort of telling people how how they should be eating um and for women it was seen you know you had to be dainty in the way that you ate so people didn't think you had too much of an appetite and that had nothing to do with your weight it just had to do with what women are allowed in terms of desire whereas men are able to sort of give in to that idea of um hunger women are meant to be able to like hold it at bay and so in showing restraint in how you're eating you're showing that you show restraint in your own desires as well right i mean that's like i've never really thought about i mean i have but i haven't labeled it as like engendered food which is something that's still like so prevalent today in how people live and how people think they should be able to live and eat and how you like if you're a man you eat your steak hey the 19th century it was like a similar it was a similar time you had so much information coming out because People, more people read because they were getting educated. You'd, you're able to print stuff more easily. Paper was, was cheaper, ink was cheaper, and you had these urban centers where you could circulate stuff more easily. So there is a lot of like pseudoscience that was passed around, fake news that was passed around. And like we're kind of going through a similar thing right now where there's so much information on a scale that like we haven't seen before that it's really hard to parse out what is real and what isn't if you're not, you know, if 
you're not given the tools to understand how to investigate the information that you're being given or even have the time to do it. Of course, someone took the time to print something. Why wouldn't I think it's real? Yeah. You, like, there's also you don't even understand how it's being circulated. I guess people are like making Facebook and like not understanding the scope because it's never been done before. Yeah. I guess if you start printing news reports and you don't understand that, oh, I can do whatever I want and then give it to anyone I want and then become circulated. Quite scary. But, you know. Yeah. <laughs> but it's not new is the thing. Like, it's just we have to continue to, you know, I, I don't know. I don't have a good answer for it. Well... I'm trying to write a new, you know, I'm trying to make my own food media to help with things yeah. like that. This is, is this the newsletter you're doing? <laughs> yeah, it's a newsletter. It's also um, a publication. We're trying this year, we're hoping to get it in print. So it's called Sourced. And basically, Anna Massing and I were both food academics. Um, and so what we're trying to do is gather voices from around the world, um, people who are interested in things and want to present that information through academic-minded research. Like all of our commissions are funded by our newsletter that we put out every other week, uh, where we kind of talk about our own sort of ethos behind the way we research and how we source people and how, how we conceptualize what a food system is and what it would look like if it were equitable and actually representative of all the people that participate in it, which is everyone. Um, because right now it seems like a lot of the way that food media is written about is in this aspirational way that like Fannie Merritt Farmer was doing. You know, what effect does that have on our farmers? What effect does that have on our supply chain? So it's, I kind of want people to think a bit more about the people aspect of our food um, systems or food and drink systems and be driven that way. So maybe instead of just following an, a trendy ingredient, Instead, let's look at, you know, this is a group that I think is doing really interesting things in an interesting way, so I'm going to support them. And just put more thought into the people behind the food that's being made for us, made, grown, all of that. Thanks for listening. Give me a follow on Instagram at the Cook's Library Podcast to keep up with releases. A link to Anna Sulan Massing and Chloe's newsletter, Source Journeys, will be in the show notes. Next week, I'll be hosting my own theme dinner. Message me what colour is most appetising to you. Or don't, if you agree it's a ludicrous idea. You're cool. Thank you. Keep cooking and keep eating.